Do you believe in miracles? Many of you of a certain age will remember just that question being asked by Al Michaels as he called the hockey game between the USA and the then Soviet Union. No one believed that the United States hockey team, or any hockey team for that matter, could defeat the Soviet Union. We were in the midst of the Cold War And as it became more and more clear that the U.S. was going to win the game, Al Michaels asked, do you believe in miracles? I've always found it fascinating that he used the term miracle to describe what had happened because a miracle suggests that some sort of outside help, that there was nothing really within the U.S.'s own power that was capable of making that happening. The the stars would have to align. There had to be some luck involved or good fortune or divine assistance. Do you believe in miracles, he asked. And it's a good question to ask on this All Saints Sunday as well. You remember the tax collector and the Pharisee, that parable that we heard from Jesus last week. Well, between that tax collector and the one we meet today, there's another story nestled in that chapter. You know it well. A a rich ruler approaches Jesus asking, what can I do to inherit eternal life? You remember this story. uh, Jesus says to him, well, keep the commandments. He rattles off a few of them and The young man says, I have kept them all from my youth. And then Luke tells us that Jesus looked at this rich ruler and looking at him, he loved him. He loved him. And he said, one thing you lack, go and sell everything that you own and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And this rich man, obviously devout, obviously seeking God, we are told, walks away sad. He's been seen by Jesus. He's been loved by Jesus. But he breaks eye contact with Jesus in that moment and walks away sad. And do you remember what Jesus said at that point? He turned to his disciples and he said, how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples predictably say, Who then can be saved, Lord? Who? And you remember very well what Jesus said. With humans this is impossible. But not with God, for with God all things are possible. Do you believe in miracles? It's only by an act of God that a camel can go through the eye of a needle. Do you believe it's so? I lose track of the number of sermons I have heard and unfortunately preached about that text, the rich ruler, that trained the pastor trains his or her fire right onto the affluent in the congregation. 
saying in no uncertain terms that Christ condemns wealth and Christ consigns all who are wealthy to the status of that sad, rich ruler who walked away. But that's not at all what happens here. Christ doesn't condemn wealth so much as he warns about the power that wealth has over those who possess it. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, Paul wrote, and that seems a correct interpretation of Jesus' teachings on money and wealth. Money that is set up on a pedestal as an idol. Money as it warps relationships. Money as it shields us from those who do not have it. Money as it numbs us in our connections with one another and our connection with God. Jesus is teaching on this important topic on wealth is warped when we read it as a moral issue alone. Give more money, then God will love you, is the message we sometimes send. Maybe we should use that as our stewardship theme next year. Give more money and stay out of hell. That's the message we sometimes send on the way that the way that we read these texts. If you want to be right with God, if you want to inherit the kingdom of heaven, start sharing the wealth. But this is not how the gospel works. You know this. You know how the gospel works. We enact the gospel in this place every week in worship. We just did it a few minutes ago. We come before God and present ourselves as we are. We give God the worship that is due God's name. We are encountered by God. And it is this encounter that sends us to this font to confess. We confess not to try to earn God's favor. We confess because God's favor has already been poured out upon us. We have been seen by God. And this seeing gives us a tremendous freedom to tell the truth. The truth about ourselves and the truth about this world in which we live. And in telling the truth, we know ourselves to be held by the God who in Christ speaks words of forgiveness over us, granting us peace, that deep peace that comes only from God and giving us the ability, us the ability, to forgive one another, to spread Christ's peace around this sanctuary and around the world. And you notice it's only then that we say the Ten Commandments in worship. Not in the context of earning God's grace, but because of God's grace. When we emerge from forgiveness and peace, we are freed then to hear God's dream for the world, God's intention for all things. The Ten Commandments come to us as good news, not an onerous law. It comes to us as the shape of living that the God who has claimed you and, and formed you and forgiven you, it's what that God desires for you and for the world, for the flourishing of the human creation, 
That's what the Ten Commandments are for us. We live out those commandments not in fear, but in deep gratitude and in profound joy. Every week then, we remember the miracle of God's love, God's forgiveness, and God's call to a healing way of living in the world. Do you believe in miracles? The shape of the gospel does not go away when we are dealing with money. The text said that Jesus looked at the rich man and loved him. He loved him quite apart from what the man would or would not do. Jesus doesn't stop loving him, I believe, as he walks away sad. Instead, he speaks the truest of words. The only way to live the shape of life God intends is through a miracle. The miracle of God's grace. With humans, that's impossible. But not with God. With God, all things are possible. And then Zacchaeus shows up. It seems clear that Zacchaeus has heard something about the miracles of Jesus, has heard something about the grace and forgiveness that, and the wholeness that breaks out all around him. How else to explain his eagerness to see Jesus? It's not likely that the crowd parted ways for Zacchaeus so that he could get to the front and see. He was, after all, a tax collector. And not just a tax collector, a chief tax collector. And not just a chief tax collector, but a rich chief tax collector. Rich because of his collusion with the Roman Empire. Rich because he would charge more than the Roman tax, which was common in those days, and pocket the difference. Hated by the people. So no, the crowds don't part for him. I'm sure there were a few sharp elbows that came his way as he tried to make his way through the crowd. He wants to see. A sycamore tree is an act of desperation. His need to see Jesus overcomes his, the obvious shame that will come his way if the crowd sees him, a grown man, climbed up a tree. But shame cannot quench his need. He wants to see. And there's something about the act itself, climbing that tree, that hints at the miracle already underway. Zacchaeus wanted to see. Did he know that he was being seen? It's Jesus who looks up and sees him there, Zacchaeus's little legs dangling from that limb. It's Jesus who calls out to him in all of his vulnerability. I don't know about you, but if I had, at my age, climbed a tree to see a celebrity passing by, the last thing I would want is for that celebrity to stop and point at me and call me out. The entire crowd surely turned and looked at him, the silly little tax collector, too short to stand along the way. If Zacchaeus feels any of that, it's not evident in the text. Instead, he hurries down. He has been seen by Jesus. 
He's been seen by the one he sought to see. What is more, he's been invited to take Jesus into his home. Now notice, Jesus doesn't say, Come down, Zacchaeus, and give half of all you possess to the poor and give back four times whatever you've defrauded and then I will come into your house. Not at all. That's not the shape of the gospel. Instead, he grants Zacchaeus the gift of seeing him and calling him and coming into his home and all that Zacchaeus promises is a response to that love and grace given to him. He was happy, says Luke, happy to take Jesus into his home. It's out of that joyful response that he makes amends. It's out of the overwhelming grace he has received that he restructures his own life and his wealth. And as a result, not only Zacchaeus, but also the entire community of Jericho is made more whole is patterned more completely on the shape of living God intends. The whole community is more flourishing after Zacchaeus sees Jesus and is seen by Jesus. Again, Jesus has looked on one who is wealthy and loved him. This time, the one Jesus loves does not turn away sad, but joyfully embraces the invitation to respond to this grace by shaping his life in response to it. Again, do you believe in miracles? On this All Saints Sunday, I do not think of the saints the world knows, the ones we can all name. Instead, my thoughts move to those shorter of stature, who at some point along the way were seen by the one we worship and patterned their living day by day in grateful response to the miracle of being seen, of being found. Many of them have their names on this banner, the bells ringing reminding us of their faithful witness. I knew many of them in my time here, Some I knew only by hearing about them from others. I'm told, for instance, of a saint named Jenny Gant. Already gone by the time I came to the church, I heard that she was short of stature, but could bring the whole congregation to a place of reverent awe when she read the scriptures. And I heard that when the vote was taken, on the question of whether to move our congregation from its downtown Five Points location to this place, that it was her, along with several other much older members of the church, who surprised everyone by vocally and loudly expressing their support for the move. In the midst of what for this congregation was a contentious vote, It was their voices that helped move the congregation and provided the momentum needed to make that hard yet faithful decision that places us here and now, in this moment, the glad inheritors of their faithful response. And there were so many others, and there are so many others, sitting out here today, faithfully responding 
to God's grace. Our congregation is vibrant and healthy and has been able to embrace God's future for us because of a miracle. Yes, a miracle that happens here time and time again. Camels going right through the eyes of needles. Grace pouring down like rain and faithful responses of time and treasure. When we hear the invitation to give, it is an invitation to join in that ancient flow of the gospel, to participate in its shape, the shape of salvation, to receive the miraculous good news that we are accepted and loved and forgiven and that we did nothing to earn it, and then to respond with lives that bless others, that flood the world with the love and peace we have received. And so it is with joy that we join in the prayer from the Scottish Book of Common Order. Eternal God, we give thanks to you for the great community of faith into which you have brought us. For those who have kept safe our scriptures, gathered our songs, built our sanctuaries, and taught us to know and trust you. Grant us grace in our day to live as faithfully as they did and to provide as generously for our children until you bring us with all your people into the fullness of your eternal joy. To that, let all the people of God in communion with all the saints say, Amen.